Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 203. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to feel really old as we <laughs> celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Mighty Ducks. I don't know what it is about this anniversary in particular. Sitting hard. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess because I remember so fondly when this movie came out and seeing it in the movie theater. Like, it's one thing when you realized that Little Mermaid celebrated a 30th anniversary when it did, because even though we remember seeing that as kids, we remember seeing it as very young children. This is one of the first that is celebrating a huge anniversary that I remember seeing as an adolescent. I think that's the difference, right? There's a difference between putting on those classic animated VHS tapes and just rewatching them because that's what you did when you were a kid. And a lot of times it was because your parents would just plot you in front of the TV and put right. one of them on. And I think a lot of the memory comes from the memorization of rewatching it. Yeah. With this one, well, I actually didn't see this one first. I, I did it the wrong way. I saw D2 first. Fell in love with D2 and then went back for this one because I have a younger brother who's not into hockey. So this wasn't really on my radar when it came out. But with D2, that's the thing. I have such a vivid memory of being so into it. And I think that's why this one is hitting a little bit harder because these are movies that we sort of discovered on our own and we remember the experience of finding them ourselves yeah. and seeing them for the first time versus the repetition. Right. I think because my, if I remember, was this my, I think my aunt took me and my brother to see this, but it's because it was the movie that we wanted to see. Right. It was the movie that we saw the trailers for that we wanted to go see. It wasn't as simple as, oh, I'm taking you to the movies and we're going to go see this. We got to pick the movie and this is the one we picked. That's a good point. It's a formative thing because you're starting to develop your taste in movies. Right. So, obviously, this was a big deal in our household. Was not as big a deal in your household as it was something that you had discovered after you saw the sequel. Which I actually think for a lot of people was probably the case. Right, because there was this mania from the first one. Right. To the point where Disney spent hundreds of millions of dollars to get an NHL expansion team and name them the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. Oh, see, that's interesting. I didn't even know that. I thought they had the team first, and then to do brand integration... They made the first film. I didn't realize it was film first, then they did the team, and that's why the second one was so big. Yeah, no, the, the, the entire thing was Disney wanted to get involved in pro sports on the heels of this being a success. Eisner wanted to get involved in sports. This was Eisner year. Yeah, well, I can't blame him for that. But can we blame him for making the film? Is it the classic that it was when it came out 30 years ago? Could Disney make a film like this again? Or a TV series. Do we yeah, Do we need more Mighty Ducks in our lives? That is what we are here to discuss today. 
This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all of the new releases. Pee-wee hockey star Gordon Bombay misses the penalty shot to win the Hawks the Minnesota State Championship. As a result, Gordon grows up to be a hardened attorney who hates hockey. After celebrating his latest winning court, Gordon is arrested for DWI and sentenced to community service as a peewee hockey coach for the Ragtag District 5 team. The team is of little interest to Gordon and the feeling is mutual until Gordon is reunited with Hans, a former mentor who owns a hockey store who convinces Gordon that he can coach the team well. After some team building, District 5 comes together and Gordon convinces his boss, Mr. Ducksworth, to sponsor the team and buy them new gear. Gordon renames the team the Ducks as a tribute. Meanwhile, Gordon uh, recruits Bruiser Fulton Reed to join the team and develops a love interest in Casey, the mother of Ducks captain Charlie Conway. The Ducks start to win and find themselves in playoff contention. The Ducks also add Hawks star Adam Banks after the district lines are redrawn, but a miscommunication leads to the Ducks nearly forfeiting their season, so Bombay steps down as the coach. After arguments and fights, the Ducks realize they are a team and they need Gordon, so they reconcile, continue to play, make the playoffs. However, it does cost Gordon his job with Ducksworth as Ducksworth's Ducksworth's friend is Charlie or is Adam Banks's father and the father does not want Adam to leave the Hawks so Gordon unwilling to pull his his um what did they say that it was his uh his protest unwilling to draw his protest Adam has to join the Ducks. It costs Gordon his job. As the Ducks continue to win, Gordon and Casey start to date, and the Ducks find themselves in the state finals to face the Hawks. The Ducks get off to a rough start, and things are only made worse as Coach Riley, the coach of the Hawks, who used to be Gordon's coach, intentionally has Banks injured and knocked out of the game. The Ducks rally against the injured Banks, unleash the Flying V, and give Charlie the chance to win the game on his own penalty shot. He does score, the Ducks win the state championship, and Gordon leaves to pursue the minor leagues as a route to getting to the NHL. So, it's a really basic plot that has a lot of subplot going on. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to address this up front. Um, Something that you don't necessarily pick up on when you're a kid. And even I didn't either when I watched it later. Because like I said, D2 was my first one. Then I went back for this when I was a teenager and still didn't pick up on. This is really not a film about hockey or a hockey team and the bonding experience. This is a redemption story for a man that is told through a hockey vehicle right and it's junior hockey right so it's a movie that's geared toward yeah okay so yeah the target demographic is kids because it's disney and it's kids sports but it is very much an adult film right if you really look at all of the story beats it does follow the hero's journey format because 
you know, he he has his fall from grace. He meets the mentor from Hans. Hans gets him back on his feet. And then he realizes that he is he wants to do this and is capable of doing it. And then he takes the team to victory. It really does follow that classic format. Right. And then weaved in there is this are they aren't they love story. It's this corporate political nonsense with his boss and Banks's father and Coach Riley. There, There's just a lot going on here, more so than I think most people give it credit for. Most, More than most people will remember this film for. That's the thing, right? You, When you think back on this movie as a kid, and I saw this, I watched this movie a lot, but even I, when I think back on it, it's to me... Like, okay, ragtag kids, they cause trouble. It's the Sandlot on skates, right? Like, that's really what right. you think because at the time, things like this, these, all of these movies came out at the same time, right? The Sandlot, Rookie of the Year, Angels in the Outfield, Mighty Ducks, Little Giants, they all came out within like three years of each other. Right. They basically all told the same story with their own twists. I think Angels in the Outfield being the biggest outlier of all of them, of course. But they all kind of told the same sort of story. So I think you kind of fall into this false sense of security with this, just assuming it's it's another one of those films. But this does bleed a little bit deeper. You're right. This film is certainly more layered than The Comparables, but... I think it also depends on what age you're watching, what you're getting out of it. When you're a kid, especially if you're a young boy watching this, you're going to respond more to the story of brotherhood with the team. When you're watching as an adult, you're going to identify more with Gordon's story. For sure. All right, let's let's actually get into this. The The thing I remember, and it hit me as soon as we started watching it, was how much the opening of this film bothered me as a kid. Oh, really? See, I thought it was a really smart idea to weave the backstory into the opening credits instead of holding on this uh, this thing, that this memory that's tortured Gordon until we meet Riley. Yeah, but that's what bothered me. Like, it hmm. tortured me as a kid. The very dark ice rink... The dark jerseys that the Hawks are wearing, the music that's playing, everything's kind of blurred out. As a kid, there was something about this that was just uncomfortable from the start. And it was like this weird, like, am, like deja vu. Like, as soon as we started watching it again, I got the pit in my stomach that I got when I was six years old seeing this movie for the first time. Interesting. Is that because, I mean, I, I know... You played hockey, but is this like a nightmare of yours? I mean, like you didn't play on a team or anything, but you would just go, you know, play roller hockey or you'd skate. But is that why did you never play in on an organized hockey league because of this scene? No, not because of this scene. <laughs> Were reason... you that tortured by it? No. So... An aside, and then we'll get back into this here. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to unpack Sean's childhood right now. When they, f okay, so yes, my dad taught me to skate on a frozen pond. Then he taught me how to rollerblade. So we would just play street hockey, or we would do, we get all the kids in the neighborhood together and their dads, and we would play kids against dads roller hockey, like on a tennis court. 
It was just what we did. We did it every Saturday for years. Finally, my parents signed me up for an organized league. And the week of the first practice, the rink burned down. I don't think I knew this. Yep. Oh, my God. The rink burned down. Well, if that's not a sign, there goes Sean's future (laughs) NHL career up in flames. Literally. So that was why after that it was just, I think I'll just play. We were like the Sandlock kids. It was just, let's just get everybody together and play. That's fun. I had a net. One other kid had a net. So you had to hope that both of us showed up because if you didn't, you couldn't play. Because you you would only have one net and you needed two. So... Just just to give you some context as to what my childhood was. Well, it's no wonder this scene bothered you so much. Yeah, I, I mean, that really is a bad omen. Um, but as you were describing the scene, too, you know, it's definitely giving us a lot of visual cues. It's not just that it's Gordon's bad memory and that's why it's dark. You know, this is the memory that you think of when you're laying your head down trying to fall asleep at night. And right. like all of your your most embarrassing and worst moments are playing on a reel in your head. And this is what he goes back to. Uh, But the darkness of the scene also is sort of foreshadowing what they're up against with the Hawks as well. Correct. Um, But yeah, I, I think it would have felt really contrived if they had held it until we meet Jack Riley. I like that they put it up front. And I like that it transition us transitions us directly into Gordon in court. Yes. His arrogance and his cockiness as he wins. But here's what I didn't understand as a kid, and I still don't really understand it now. And I understand it's the whole point of the film is to learn teamwork. No firm is going to be angry that they have a successful attorney. Yeah, especially one with a record of 30 and 0 or 30 and 1 if you really want to get into the semantics of it all. Yeah, like, nobody is going to be angry that he wins and that he's arrogant about winning because that's their goal, is to win as many cases as possible. So it didn't make sense to me then, and honestly, like, it kind of does not make sense to me now. The The Dewey was enough getting him into community service. I don't think you needed to weave this sense of you need to learn teamwork into the story. See, I don't know that that's necessarily what they were doing because that was a big note that I had. I love that between the loss as a kid, we are learning about his competitive nature without having to spend too much time in the courtroom. So between the hockey memory and then we see his giant lawyer ego come into play they are building this character up just so we can watch him fall and he is going to fall so spectacularly almost to a point where he becomes unlikable within the first five minutes of this film yeah but they do it in a way where i think because it's so well paced they don't ever cross the line to the point where he becomes fully dislikable. You're right. You never fully lose him altogether. But between the arrogance of his job and then this slam cut to the drinking and driving, they are very much towing that line where we're not going to stand behind our main character. Let's unpack this, yes. shall we? Because no matter how many times you rewatch it, no matter how old you get, 
it is so jarring to see him actively sipping on a beer while operating a vehicle. I I had forgotten. Okay, so when I sat to watch this with you, the first time you and I watched it together, which I think was like 10 years ago, I had it had been so long since I had watched this that I had Same. forgotten that he got arrested for a DUI and was actively drinking and driving his car. I remember because you and I both had such a strong reaction to it. I think we were drinking a beer and almost did a spit take at that point. Like, are you kidding? In a Disney movie. A Disney DUI. You would never see that again. No, never. Um, I had forgotten all about it. And yeah, it. but I had that same reaction watching now. It's just so jarring to see. But at the same time, you're, he has to get arrested for a DWI. So how else are you going to show it? You know, like, I know Disney wouldn't do that now because they're just so sensitive to everything. But at the end of the day, like, it is a movie, folks. It is a film, right? And if you're trying to tell a story, you kind of have to show us what's happening. Right. And this is where you do make the argument that it is his redemption story because you have to see him really screw up pretty bad. But for a Disney film, and I'm wondering if this is something they'll do down the line in the new tradition of Disney editing things that are on Disney plus and people are discovering that what is on Disney plus is not matching their old VHS tapes or even DVDs. Right. Um, I'm wondering if they cut around it and just show him driving recklessly and getting pulled over, which is what they could have done the first time around, which again is why it's just so surprising that they show it. Yeah, but you're not necessarily going to get arrested for that. They had to get him into jail. Right. And this this whole scene is so great. Like when the cop says breath. Uh... Breath, blood or urine. <laughs> no, thanks. I'm full. It's the best joke in the movie. It slaps. It still slaps. It's hysterical. Um, So now Gordon, he's going to try and find a loophole to get himself out of it. And his boss, Ducksworth, says no. This is a good learning experience for you, but because I'm such a wonderful person, I'm going to keep you on full salary and hire a driver for you so that you can coach peewee hockey as a part of a plea deal that I struck with the judge. What a guy that Ducksworth is. (laughs) See, this is where it becomes a little far-fetched because no boss in their right mind is going to do this. You're going to lose your job. But to your point before, this is where Gordon does sort of get a pass for his his arrogance because he doesn't want to lose, Ducksworth does not want to lose his star player because he messed up. He wants the guy that's going to win 30 cases. Right. So I think that's why he's willing to bend the rules and to keep him because he wants a good lawyer and he does have, I wish they would have played this out a little bit more that he had faith in Gordon to turn it around. Yes. And that he kind of became like a paternal figure or a mentor to Gordon, because at this point we haven't even met Hans yet. All we know is that Gordon's father has passed away. So you're thinking maybe Ducksworth is, the person that's taking that role in his life. Exactly. I mean, it's nice that he did all of these things for Gordon, but you still need a little bit more motivation other than 
he wants to keep his best attorney with the company because in the scene prior, he gives him that lecture about win, but don't spike. I forget exactly what the line is. He, he just says, don't spike. In other words, because of Gordon's behavior in the courtroom, he's happy that he won the case, but Gordon was really twisting the knife and, um, really acting holier than thou in the scene. So he did tell him to dial it back a notch in the courtroom. So it doesn't really add up that even though he wants somebody who's going to win his cases, why he would go out on the limb here. So again, a bit far-fetched that he would give him, you know, the car, let him keep the salary. Um, But you really did I, I appreciate that they gave us such a big setup for how he lands with the team and it wasn't just like former hockey player wants to get back into it and you know it would have been really lame if Ducksworth had just said I think community if there was no Dewey or anything and Ducksworth was just like, I think teamwork would do you some good. There's this peewee hockey league and I'm going to sponsor them and you're going to coach them because you used to play. I think that would have been too contrived. So I think this is a really good setup. And I like that we have lived with Gordon so long before we even introduce the team and they haven't been cutting back and forth to the ragtag group that needs a coach. And, you know, it would have felt forced to just bring them together in that way. For sure. Then we meet the kids. Their introduction is great. The purse prank with the dog. It was funny then. It's still funny now. And I do think it it acts as a good intro to the District 5 hockey kids. I agree. I mean, are they being bad kids? They could be a lot worse. You know, it's not like they're hanging out. Certainly Disney is not going to show them smoking or anything. But it does paint the picture of... These kids do need a focus and a structure. Otherwise, they're going to misbehave. But it's a harmless prank. Right. And the music sounds like Home Alone, right? Right. So, again, it's Disney is picking up on and feeding off of things that were very much popular at the time. Um, So let's talk about the first practice. Gordon shows up with his driver in limousine. They drive right out onto the ice. Baller move. Baller move. This this practice scene is still funny. Yes. They are the kids can't play. It's basically kill the guy with the ball, in this case, kill the guy with the puck. Goldberg is a goalie that's got newspapers taped to his legs because he has no pads. Nobody has matching uniforms. Half of them aren't even wearing hockey jerseys. Right. So um I thought that in all it was a good introduction. It was funny, but also served as a good introduction for the mess that Gordon is inheriting. Right. Even just by virtue of they're not practicing in a real rink. I mean, there's something beautiful about the pond hockey. And I think, you know, just for the cinematography, it works really well. But I think that it's also supposed to serve as a cue for these kids really don't have any kind of structure with this team. Yeah, for sure. Then we get the interaction between Gordon and Coach Riley because now he's getting ready to bring the Ducks to their first game that he has to coach, and it's against the Hawks. Of course. Right, of course. And as the as Gordon and Riley are talking, Gordon is looking down the wall at all of the first-place banners 
and then he sees the one second place banner. First a off, big yellow banner. Big yellow banner, which first off, nobody's going to put a second place banner up. No. But Riley needs to get over it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so pathetic in so many ways um, that Riley just can't get over this second place banner and that all these years later, he still needs to rub it in the face of not only a kid, this is a grown adult. Right. <laughs> He's got to rub it in his face. I feel like it would have been almost more of a slap in the face if they had every banner hanging and just left the gap for the year that they didn't win. And it would have been a little bit more realistic to us because this this bright yellow banner calling attention to it just makes it seem a little bit ridiculous. But you're right. These are two grown men. I think Gordon is certainly allowed to be haunted by this memory because he loved hockey so much and this is what stopped him from really pursuing it. So that's fine. But to know that the coach is still bothered by it, I mean, I get it. If he had a perfect record otherwise with the Hawks, that one loss is going to bother him. But it's like you have nothing else in your life that this is what bothers you the most. Apparently not. But let me tell you something. I don't hate how he has the Hawks ready to play. Right, because they're chanting win, and then you get a couple more flashbacks with Gordon where uh, Riley tells him it doesn't matter. uh, It's not worth playing unless you win or something like that. Basically, the antithesis of the movie that, you know, Gordon's trying to teach these kids that winning isn't everything as long as you have fun. And teach them self-esteem in that way. And that is juxtaposed with the coach who just has one driving force throughout the whole thing. Unpopular opinion. And it's going to be unpopular with the parents here. But even as a kid, I didn't think losing was fun. No one does. When someone said, it's not about winning, it's about having fun. No, it's not. It's about learning how to play the sport and competing to your at the highest level that you can compete and winning. I hated my participation trophies. I wanted to win. Right. In every sport that I played, I wanted to win. Simply being there wasn't good enough. Is Riley really harsh on these kids? Yeah. But at the same time, bear another thing in mind. They keep telling you, oh, peewee hockey, peewee hockey. Some of these kids, it's not like they're five, six years old. Right. These kids are old enough where you kind of need a hardened coach that's going to teach them how to play the game the right way. Some of these kids are within a couple of years of going to a prep school, like some of our ducks are in the third film. So they like the these kids, especially in Minnesota, they are really training for if you're playing at this level with this kind of team, you're readying yourself to take the next step. These are the kind of coaches that a lot of parents want to have. Right, because if all you've ever known as a child is the coach who supports and encourages you, it's going to be a splash of cold water when if you decide you really want to pursue a sport to have a coach that is going to bring out the best of you because they are going to be, and it's not even tough love, they are going to be extremely hard on you and you need that mental preparation from a coach like Riley. Correct. So 
mentally and physically, the Hawks are ready to go. They blow the doors off the Ducks, who more or less just quit while they're on the ice anyway. And there's a confrontation between Gordon and the team at the after the game on the ice, and he and he's calling out, I tell you to skate fast, you slow down. I tell you to do this, you do that. And he says, why the hell won't you listen to me? And I think it was Terry. Jesse. Jesse, that's right. It was Jesse says to him, why the hell should we? The one time like I really love and appreciate Jesse's attitude. Yes. It's a huge line. It's, but it, but it's, it's everything that we needed to hear out of the entire team, just out of one player up to this point in time. You're absolutely right. Not only does Gordon deserve it, this is the only thing that I sort of bump on. Gordon is asking, why didn't you do what I said? How many times do I have to tell you? I feel like it's weak writing because we've never seen him tell the kids any of this. The practice was spent in the limo when they all jumped in with him and then Charlie's mom busts it up. So they never had a full practice. They know that he doesn't want to be there because he said as much as soon as he met them. And he didn't really give them a big pep talk. He saw the Hawks chanting win, win, win. And he knew that he needed to rally them in some way, but he really hasn't given them any coaching at this point so I feel like his reaction is completely uncalled for um I think during the game he is trying to call out some of these things to them but because he didn't give them any other kind of prep I I just feel like it's it's bad writing at that point to have him do this whole why can't you listen to me reaction when he hasn't actually told them anything? The knowing that he doesn't really want to be there is not enough. And I understand the point they were trying to make, like had the team won, had they beat the Hawks, Gordon wouldn't care so much. And he'd just be like, okay, yeah, do that again the next time we play. But the fact is they didn't win. We know that this is going to be Gordon's cue to, okay, I actually have to mold them more, but it just didn't make sense for him to say, why can't you listen to me when A, he hasn't done anything to earn their trust and B, he has not taught them one thing about hockey. Right. So the first thing he tries to teach them is to cheat, which none of them want to do, which I understand and I agree with. But the only one <clears throat> that actually should have done it was Charlie, because Gordon tells him when you get into the corner and they go high on you grab your eye and pretend like you're hurt. In this case, Charlie should have done it because the stick. the stick is underneath his visor in his face. That's, that's not supposed to happen anyway. I wonder if that was a mistake that they made while filming and they just rolled with it. But it kind of is counterintuitive to the point that they're trying to make. So after that, Gordon has basically completely lost the team. Not that he really had them anyway, but he sees Hans lingering. Well, I think he saw Hans lingering during the Hawks game. The first game. Because he's yelling at the team at the end, and that's what Hans kind of takes a dig at. So we go to so now we go to Hans Hockey Castle. Woohoo! This is like the most elaborate store I've ever seen. It is wandering Oakens. The only difference is it's not in the middle of the woods. Yeah. 
And that's where we really learn and flash back to Gordon's childhood, the loss of his father, how much his father played a role in his life, how much his father played a role in how much Gordon loved hockey. And naturally, Hans has a pair of skates for Gordon, and they're too big, but he tells him to wear thick socks, and off goes Gordon to skate. Now, a lot of that is a stunt double, but a good portion of that is Emilio Estevez, who learned how to skate, and he can skate really well. He really can. I was actually going to bring that up, too, when we were talking about the stick under Charlie's helmet. I mean, clearly, all of these kids can actually skate. Um are they doing it in the wide shots? No, that's where the doubles come in. Are they doing it in the actual game? No, they're just doing it for the close-ups. But the kids are really on the ice, as is Emilio Estevez. I was really impressed by that. So now Gordon is brought back to life. He loves hockey now, like he did when he was a kid, overnight, seemingly. And now he goes to speak to Charlie Conway to apologize for what he asked Charlie to do. Right, because if we're talking about the hero's journey structure, he has met the mentor with Hans, and now it's the rising action. He's got to rally this team back together and earn their trust. But I, I know I'm sort of like sounding blah, blah, blah about it, but it is really well done. The writing here is really good, and it doesn't feel... It's, it's not like Karate Kid that follows the same structure, and it's just so obvious what's going to happen next. Right. It's a lot more finesse than that because here is where they introduce the idea of the love interest in Charlie's mom. And Charlie not only accepts Gordon's apology, but he asks him to stay for dinner. This is something that sort of bothers me, though, because Gordon sort of recognizes the tension in the situation and he declines the dinner invitation at first. And then he's like, all right, well, what are you having? Literally in the same beat. So I just wish that they had made him commit one way or the other. It was either a, eh, I, I'm not available tonight, maybe some other time, and had him leave because he's not ready to get involved in that level yet, or just answered, sure, I'll stay. Yeah. So now we get back to Ducksworth's office. Gordon convinces him to sponsor the Ducks because they need money for uniforms and equipment because these kids can't afford it. They go on a spending spree that I dreamed of as a kid over at <laughs> Hans's shop. And then uh, Gordon brings them back to basics and actually starts to coach them on the ice, which was not only fun, but also effective. Because especially with the egg, a lot of coaches do teach you that when you're young. I love this whole sequence because it really shows how Gordon is starting to care. Um, he realized that there was a problem with these kids not having equipment, and that is going to affect their performance. But I thought it was such a great idea to have him pitch this to Ducksworth. And I also like what it does for the character because it still keeps a foot in the door of the smarmy lawyer. And he really does have an ulterior motive because you know, he's trying to get Ducksworth's money to help these kids because he obviously can't do it himself. But he's putting the spin on it of, oh, this will make you look great. It's sponsorship. It's advertising. Everybody's going to know us as the good guys. So it is very much a lawyer move. Um, 
But really, you can tell it's because he wants to genuinely help the team. Um, And that gets further fleshed out in this practice. I think this is one of the greatest training sequences in any sports film because he gives you, you know, in the dialogue what he's trying to teach him to teach them. And then we see it executed in in what they're actually working on. And you get a very funny bar mitzvah joke from Goldberg. Several. It, it, hysterical. This is one of Goldberg's best scenes in the Mighty Ducks franchise, hands down. Agreed. What I also didn't pick up on until this latest rewatch yesterday was when we go recruit Fulton Reed. I love he, this acquisition. Because he breaks the window of the van. Yes. Twice. Yeah. Notice, though, they're not in the limousine anymore. They're in a van now. Gordon obviously gave something up for these kids. It wasn't just go to Ducksworth and ask for money. He clearly trimmed back on what he was being driven in to offset the cost of having these kids sponsored by Ducksworth. Listeners, my jaw is on the floor right now. I didn't catch that at all whatsoever. I mean, the van is part of the sponsorship because now you're you're driving the kids as a team. But you're right. He traded in that van. It, he traded his limo for the van, his nice cushy limo. That really is such a great visual cue of how much he is starting to care about them because you don't see that limo again. You... When he drops Charlie off for the night, they're in the van. I love, we haven't talked about the driver yet. I love how his limo driver, it's such a great introduction to the character. He's talking about, oh, in the 80s, I would drive this band and that band and I would hang out with him. So like he had his glory days the same way that Gordon did. And I I love how it goes from that sort of a relationship where he's just there to drive him around and he's talking like he's a has-been, to being almost his assistant coach because he is with him on the bench. He's driving the team around. He is just He has a jersey eventually. He yeah. is just as much a member of this team as anyone else. And then he later went on to drive the country bears. But he, Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yes, let's talk about Fulton Reed. Typecasting. Ful- Fulton Reed... I love the acquisition of Fulton Reed. I love what he means for the team. I love that he puts his own scholarship on the line to play hockey, to be a part of the Ducks. The only thing... now, And for Fulton Reed, it makes sense. He's got the slap shot they wanted. He's got the muscle they wanted. The only thing at this point that I kind of shake my head about is... Gordon is just, like, grabbing kids. Like, Danny Tamborelli just happens to be at the ice <laughs> rink with his sister figure skating, and he's like, you want to play hockey with us? Okay, you're on the team. Here's a jersey. He's just now just plucking kids to fill out the roster. But he's coaching. He is, but it, it just seems like after a while, it's just like, kid, hockey, and, and, they're, <laughs> and now they're a duck. I mean, yes, you're not wrong, but... Character-wise, I think that it was sort of a smart move. I mean, he does have to fill out this roster. And because of the Ducks' reputation, he is kind of taking anyone he can get. But at the same time, we are seeing him step into the mentality of being a coach because he has to seek out the... I 
feel like talent is a strange word at this point, but that's the idea, right? He has to seek out his players and he sees what he needs from these kids. I'm surprised that that's what you're bumping on more so than the fact that Fulton's Achilles heel is that he can't actually skate. And then we get the mall montage. Oh, where they're all skating through the mall together. I don't hate it. I don't hate it either. I mean, they're kids. Where else are they going to go? And it's Minnesota. Like, where are you going to rollerblade them in Minnesota in the winter? Right. I think for Other me. Other than, you know, like a roller rink. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But I, I feel like visually that would have been too much the same of what we've just seen in the training monta- montage if he's teaching Fulton how to skate in a rink. I feel like that would have been like womp womp. And part of this is like, you know, it's Disney. They're going to put it over the top. They're obviously going to use this scene in a trailer. Like, Oh my God, what are these crazy kids doing skating through a mall? Um, I think I'm also a lot more forgiving of it because they call it back in D2 when they put the team back together. It's a total rehash. Yeah. The quack attack is back, Jack. (laughs) It's the same scene. Right. And I guess that's why I appreciate its predecessor. Yeah, I guess. Um, All right. So now we get the jerseys, right? The jerseys that the Ducks wear are iconic. Of all of the jerseys that I own, and I do own jerseys that came from movies, I've never acquired one of these because they are just so damn expensive. But I know one day I will. I see. I have. So, okay. So I have an Anaheim Ducks, an Anaheim Mighty Ducks jersey that they wore at the end of the second movie. Right. I actually do have an NHL Ducks jersey. But these jerseys are iconic. And the speech that Bombay gives is beautifully cheesy. It really is. It's what you expect out of a Disney sports film. But what I think I love the most is now he, I mean, you've watched his redemption up to this point. You get them all in uniform for the first time. They're at the first game. And he has one of the best lines in the film when he's trying to rally the kids and they still don't fully believe in themselves because they still haven't really won up to this point. And he says to them, that was District 5. The Ducks are undefeated. Yeah. The rebirth of the team. I've always loved that line. And not not just in the sense of what it meant for the team, but what it meant for Bombay. Yeah. Like everybody is hitting the reset button right now. Right. So now they get some cachet. Uh, and they realize they have a shot at the playoffs. Which I love that Hans is the one keeping tabs on. He's got this whole, uh, again, like the best hockey store of all time. He's got all of the standings for this league. And and I think that that's such a nice, um, I mean, it certainly speaks to Hans' character, but I love the sense of community. Yes. That that it paints the picture of in this shop, that all of the kids go there, all the kids shop there, and that the community cares about, this league and you know not not necessarily who's winning but it's just nice that he has this display for them uh and then he gives gordon the nugget about where the lines are drawn as far as where the kids live and what team they should be a part of meaning that banks is technically should be on the ducks yeah and i love how 
the coach that can't let second place go away all of a sudden now does not care about league rules. Right. Right. Riley, who's Mr. I love hockey, I love the Hawks, I love to win, I'm a staple, wants to break league rules to keep Banks on his team because Banks is not supposed to be a Hawk based on how the district lines were drawn and he can't handle it. Right, but that's the whole character, though. This guy's going to do whatever it takes to win. So, of course, he's not going to care about the rules if it means the Hawks winning. Right. What I love most about using Banks as leverage, though, is that plot-wise, it works both for the A and B story. Because Gordon is going to... I mean, obviously, he... He's going to play by the rules, so it speaks to his character. He wants Banks because he's a good player, and it's later going to set up an even bigger conflict. The final showdown, really, with him and Riley, or or the almost the final showdown. The final showdown is the game. Um, but that's really, like, the climax of this conflict with Riley, uh, is getting Banks over to the Ducks. But it also works with the B story of the ducks, because they now have to accept not only a new player with this team that they've developed and this strong bond that they have, they're still looking at him as the enemy. They are. I want to put a pin in that though, for a moment. Yeah. Cause it does come back again later, but this is the setup for it now when Hans does give him this information. Right. And then it creates tension within the ducks because of this great miscommunication where Peter and Jesse overhear Bombay talking to Riley and Bombay is being sarcastic when he calls the Ducks a group of losers because he's just trying to rub it in the face of Riley and basically call out Riley for you're you're an awful coach with how you treat these kids right and I'm trying to teach these kids to play as a team and yada 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 now this great miscommunication that now has created a, a divide within the Ducks where they think that Bombay does not believe in the team he's put together because the rumor mill starts to spread. Besides the way that he yells at them after the first game with, like, no foundation, this is the other the only other aspect of the writing that really bothers me. I can take the cheesy speeches. I can take everything else. But I don't know if it's the written words, the direction, or Emilio Estevez's delivery of, yeah, they're losers. They don't deserve to live that I just bump on because it's not sarcastic enough where... I don't believe that he's not lying to the kids when he tells them he was being sarcastic later. It doesn't sound like dripping with sarcasm enough where I I believe that that's what actually happened. And I think it's just the wording of it too. I feel like there are so many other things that he could have said where the kids would have misinterpreted it. And, and then I would buy, Oh, this was just a big misunderstanding. Um, I feel like had he said, um, 
they're a bunch of losers and actually stood up to Riley in that moment and said, but they're my losers and I'd rather win with them. Or I, I'd rather lose with this group than be a part of your team. And if they had heard the wrong piece of that and brought that back to the locker room, I'd buy it so much more than they don't deserve to live. I, I, I don't know. It just bothers me so much. What bothers me is in the next scene when the kids start to give up on him and the Ducks end up forfeiting that game because only Charlie and Fulton come out onto the ice. Um, they, they, they call him out right away for this is what you said to Riley. And he's like, I didn't mean it like that. Like he and that was like the most he would say. Like it's not until later on that he explains to them, guys, I was speaking in sarcasm. I don't know why he didn't just do it right then and there and avoid this whole thing. And that's why it seems like he's lying to me. It it seems like later when he says, guys, it was sarcasm, that was his excuse to get what he wanted. It yeah. seems like he had days to come up with with this cover up. Right. Because I think Adding Banks to the Ducks probably could have been enough of a fracture within the team that you didn't necessarily need to add this as a subplot because as quickly as it's in the film, it's out of the film. Right, and you also have that added conflict of um, Peter has realized that Gordon was a former Hawk. The conflict could have come naturally from, you know, what if... What if coach wants us to throw the game because he's still friends with Riley or something like that? If the kids had discovered the history, which they did, and held that against Bombay, that would have been enough to fracture this team. Yeah. And then at the same time, it's if I'm Bombay, it's like, yeah, I was a hawk because that's where I lived. You're a duck because that's where you live. Right. I didn't go and sign as a free agent with this guy. He was my coach because of where my parents bought a house. Right. Um, the one thing that it does do, though, is set up the really good scene with Charlie in the diner. I love this scene. Joshua Jackson is excellent in this scene. Seriously. He carries it. He does. But I love the scene because Gordon is taking more of a love interest in Casey. Charlie's going for it. But then you get this really emotional scene where Gordon tells Charlie that he's stepping down and that Jesse's parents are going or Jesse's father is going to assume the coaching responsibilities because it's what's best for the team. And Charlie just breaks down crying and he's like, you made us and now you're stuck with us. It, again, it's such a good performance by Joshua Jackson. It is. What I love about it, too, is when Gordon opens up to him about missing the shot and this memory that has tormented him for all of these years. And Charlie goes, well, think about it. If you had shot a quarter inch to the left, you would have missed it entirely instead of the puck hitting the post, which is what has agonized Gordon for all these years. Right. And Charlie just in three seconds undoes all of this trauma. Yeah. The, this kid, like, he just runs so deep, you know, and it is such an obvious thing to point out. Like you could have missed it entirely. And Gordon's like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Right. Because, you know, he is learning from this kid just as much as the kid is learning from him. Correct. So now we've got two scenes that we're flashing back and forth from. The one where Gordon gets fired because he won't pull his protest 
um, and the kids getting into a fight in school because, again, the rumor mill about Charlie's mom and Bombay. And they get into a fight and they quack at the principal. We need to unpack this scene a little bit. Uh, Number one, it starts off with a very adult joke, which is at times even more jarring than the drinking and driving. Yeah. You do do we say it? I think we have to say it, right? They they're talking about uh Adams and the the I, I think it's their science teacher or physics teacher what whatever. Biology maybe. Yeah. Um they're talking about the composition, is it water? It's water. Whatever. The the yeah, it's the hi- hydrogen and, and the oxygen. two oxygen yeah. and the oxygen's blue and and he says blue balls offhand and the kids snicker. Um it's hilarious. I forgot it was in there. You'd never see it now, but it it's such a great joke. It forgives all of the other writing issues that I've had with this other with, with uh Gordon's character earlier. Um and it's almost negated because then there's a knock at the door and he goes, "Oh, it's the principal." The kids don't know their principal? Yeah, through the window. And then they get into a fight and the principal comes in and breaks it up. Now, they're getting in a fight because Charlie is upset with people talking about his mom and Bombay, which makes sense. So they fight for about, I don't know, 11 seconds. And well, and then immediately, we're a team. Quack, quack. It's like, yeah. okay, that's, it's great that you're a team, but you were a team 10 seconds ago. What happened in that 10 seconds that made you a team other than getting yelled at by the principal? Right. Right. Now, at the same time, Gordon is getting fired by Ducksworth because he won't release Banks back to the Hawks. Which makes sense because, you know, he's just following the league rules. Although the league is willing to make an exception to keep Adam on the Hawks and then redraft the lines the next year so that Banks can join the Ducks. They just want him to finish out the season, and Gordon says no. And I think part of that is because Gordon knows that he can beat Riley with Banks, but I also think Banks wears the same number that Gordon wore. I think that Gordon sees a lot of himself in Banks, so I think he's trying to like rescue Banks from the poison that is Riley. I agree. And it's surprising, too, that Ducksworth, I know him and Banks' father go way back, and, and he goes back with Riley, too. Uh, so I love that this scene throws a little bit of politicking in there, but I'm surprised that Ducksworth would even buy into that because he's got his name all over these jerseys. Like, don't you want the team that you're sponsoring to win? And you know they can do that with Banks. But, I mean, I guess that's it. He doesn't really care about hockey. He cares about how he looks. And he cares about what his colleagues are going to think of him. Well, let's also not forget that he's going to fire Bombay for doing the exact thing that he asked Bombay to do this entire time. Yeah, he just doesn't like that he's being stood up to. What I love about this scene also is that Gordon goes back to the office and he's in his jersey and a jacket, and the three of them are in suits. So visually, it is telling us where his head is really at. And I think from the minute he walks in the door, you know there's the potential that he could get fired, and he's okay with that. Yeah. So Gordon goes to the school, like you do, to apologize to each kid and tell them that he wants to be their coach again. 
and they're all in detention together. And they all quack again, and they move on to the next game. I'm fine with the cheese factor of when he's like, did you really crack at the quack at the principal? And they're all like, yeah. He could have just said, I'm really proud of you guys, and said, are we ducks or what? I remember that line could have done from the trailer. It. I could remember that line from the trailer. <laughs> and to me, it kind of all falls apart in the next game to where I put a pin in it before. Yeah. Okay. Adam comes into the locker room. Cake eater. Cake eater comes into the locker room and Charlie goes to introduce himself and welcome Adam to the team because that's the kind of kid and captain that Charlie is. Jesse stops him and basically says to Adam, you are not welcome here. Ten minutes earlier, Jesse did not want to be a duck. Jesse has kind of not Mm. wanted to be a duck this entire time. And now all of a sudden... He's so proud of being a duck. Right. It, it, it is poor writing. I understand you're trying to create tension with Banks, but I think it would have made more sense later on in the game, they won't pass to Banks. Charlie right. eventually does. Jesse won't. Right. I think that you could have created more tension if they brought Banks in and Banks was being a puck hog because of what he was taught with the Hawks. Right, because that is Jesse's whole thing uh, because his father is sort of instilling that pressure. Jesse and Terry's father, by the way, one of two parents out of this whole team that we ever see that actually have speaking lines. Uh, And yet when they win at the end, this everybody apparently had parents at the game all of a sudden. Anyway, I digress. Um, you know, they have been planting these seeds with his father's lines throughout the film where he tells Gordon, I didn't come, I didn't give up my overtime to watch my son cheat. Um, and he does. And and then when Gordon steps away, he's going to take over as the coach. So I think there's been that underlying story of how, not that he's doing it in a way that's like stage parenting his sons, but he is very concerned with their ice time. And I wish that they had steered into that a little bit more because there is a lot more character development that would come from that with this father wanting his sons to have the ice time, wanting them to be star players. Um, Not just because this is a game that they enjoy, but he wants them to have a future in it. Right. So I think that that's something that could have created a little bit more of a natural conflict with Jesse as well. When it would have been his father as the coach, he was going to put his son in the driver's seat. Um, And I think that that would have lent to Jesse butting heads with Gordon a little bit more where I was going to be front and center. And now you're giving that to the cake eater. Right. Let's talk, before we get to the last game against the Hawks, let's talk about the are-they-or-aren't-they relationship between Casey and Bombay. Um, First off, I think the single mom trope, it's funny because we just talked about Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire, which came out, I think, like seven years after this did, but there is still that single mom trope in these 90s films where 
every guy that finds the woman attractive runs away when when he finds out she's got a kid. Right. Right. Um. So I think that it kind of has that going against it, but they haven't really built enough between Casey and Gordon to sell them as a viable option for each other. Right, because Charlie has been planting all of these seeds, inviting him to stay for dinner. Uh, You know, then in the diner scene, he's going to stay for coffee, but then Charlie bolts, so we don't really see anything develop there. And we don't see any sort of interaction with them at the game. It could have been as simple as we see her coming in to sit down and take her spot and, you know... It's in slow motion from from Bombay's POV. But because he's so focused on hockey, as he should be, um, they could have planted her as a distraction a little bit. Yeah. Especially because the rest of the team calls them out, you know? Right. And there just hasn't been enough up to that point to even put two and two together and, and make them an item. The date scene is nice, though. This winter carnival, you get the sculptures... Um, where it sort of falls apart, though, is when she's talking about this castle that she's envisioned and she's picking out the rooms for her and for Charlie. And he goes, where's my room? You have already seen Gordon fall in love with your kid. Actually, they did pepper it in one more time when he drops Charlie off. You know, they're kind of like wrestling and playing and she's watching from the window, clearly developing feelings for him. This guy who's being like wonderful to her kid. Um, I understand where they're going to have her guard up a little bit. But. He's fallen in love with your kid before he fell in love with you. So the fact that he is sitting here offering you the whole package and he hasn't said anything wrong, she bites his head off and it's conflict for conflict's sake, which was kind of annoying. Right. All right, let's get to the final game against the Hawks. The national anthem shot is incredible. Yeah. With both teams lined up on the ice, the music, everything about it is spectacular. Especially how they have Banks lined up against, uh, well, they've always been the trio. Because when they, um, when Fulton helps the Ducks out uh, in the alleyway, they're, uh, when they get the Sports Illustrated. Yes. Uh, magazines banks shows up with these two other kids whose names escape me they all shared the same bowl for their haircut yeah um so you know clearly they've been like this little gang within the hawks i guess you could say um so it's great to see banks squared off against them before they're about to play and they really do develop that even more when riley tells these two now to to turn on him right so a lot of this is rough because riley is willing to knock a child out of the game because he wants to win totally buy that for riley you know what i think is worse than that though adam's father still sits with the Hawks supporters and yes. still wears a Hawks jacket. Yes. He du- he won't even sit with the duck parents on the duck supporter side. He still his father is still going to be a hawk. Right. I'm also going to call some I'm going to call out two things here when it comes to just from a hockey rules perspective. Banks scores and he gets tripped. Well, he gets tripped and he scores. He gets injured. And then the kid who trips him goes to the penalty box for two minutes. The minute that puck went in the net, 
that penalty gets negated. The Ducks are not supposed to go on a power play after that goal gets scored. From a hockey perspective, this movie does play with the rules of the game for its convenience so that they can put the story together. Right. And to me, if they're going to bend the rules, you just took Banks out of the game. That other kid should be thrown out. Instead, Fulton gets thrown out for flipping a kid over. Yeah. And then Charlie gets his shot at redemption and gets his chance to score on the penalty shot that Gordon missed on playing for the Hawks. But here's the thing. Charlie was the one that got tripped on the breakaway. So having Gordon decide which player is going to take the penalty shot makes no sense. And he says, like, we'll have Charlie do it. Let Charlie finish what he started. Charlie is the one that got rewarded the penalty shot because he's the one that got tripped. If Charlie gets tripped, Jesse can't take the penalty shot. It has to be Charlie. Well, I mean... So, like, it's fine. Like, have Charlie get hooked... Have them call the penalty shot. Let Gordon coach Charlie into the penalty shot. But you don't need this. Let's let Charlie do it, guys, because Charlie's the one that has to do it anyway. I mean, the team has to... That's part of building this team, right? Is that they have to have faith in their captain and they've done everything else. This is the one loose end that they had to tie up because every other obstacle that this team has faced they've overcome Goldberg has made a save at this point uh Jesse has buried the hatchet with Adam they've Lord knows done the flying V and learned to work as a team instead of putting the pressure on individual players like Fulton or Gee or even the the figure skating brother and sister They've done all of these trick shots, but that flying V is, okay, now we're going to work as a team. And this was the last piece of the puzzle that they have to put their faith in Charlie, which they have every other time because he has really been the glue holding this team together. Every time they wanted to turn on Gordon, he has reined this team in, but they still don't have faith in him as a player and they have to because he is the captain. Right. All right. Let's start talking about the cast here, Um, starting with. The Mighty Duck Man, I swear to God. Emilio Estevez. Um, yeah, I mean, he's great. He is Gordon Bombay. What they did to him in Game Changers is a crime, and it's criminal. And frankly, I'm kind of happy that he's not returning to the series just because they did that character no justice. I love this character. He's an icon, and I think that he is one of the most underappreciated characters that we've ever discussed on this show. He's Gordon Bombay and he's going to go all the way, which I know speaks more to the second film, which obviously we will be talking about next week. But I, I loved him in D2 and I loved seeing the character really develop in this movie. They, they laid such great groundwork for what they eventually did with this trilogy in this film. Uh, and I think Emilio Estevez just has such the perfect balance of showing his internal conflict with the character and what he's trying to do with this team and putting his own issues aside to get this team to victory. Uh, And I love that he balances the happy and the sad uh, from his own memories and his own experience with hockey. Um, 
Yeah, that's it. I, I, I think balance is the operative word here. I, I think he just nailed it. Right. And then you go to the other extreme with Lane Smith, who plays Jack Riley. I love Lane Smith in this role. I loved him in My Cousin Vinny. He's just a really strong actor. He carries every scene that he's in. Yeah, he really gives it that villainous quality of, you know he's not a good character from the jump, and he'll say it with a smile, but you can tell that he's really not a good person. Yeah. Joshua Jackson plays Charlie Conway. We talked about it before. Charlie is great. He's such a good character. He's such a smart character, and I love how he was played. And he's a darn good skater. He looks so confident on that ice. Honestly, I don't know how I did not have a bigger obsession with Joshua Jackson when I was a kid. I mean, I loved him as Pacey on Dawson's Creek, but growing up on these films and knowing that he he can skate, like, how did I know? Well, I only had eyes for Sean Hunter back in the day, so I guess that's why I didn't have a giant crush. But, like, I should have for all intents and purposes. Sean Weiss plays Goldberg. I think if there's one character outside of Bombay that everybody associates with this film, it's Goldberg. He's hysterical, and I'm just happy to see that Sean Weiss has made the redemption that he has as his life has gone on. Yeah, because it's such a shame what happened to him, but I'm glad that he's on the up and up uh, because Goldberg is such a beloved character. Yeah, as is Averman, played by Matt Doherty. Averman, the the jokester. It doesn't get old. It should and it doesn't. It should be so annoying and yet it's not. Vincent LaRusso plays Adam Banks. Adam is just a victim of circumstance. And the one thing that I've always felt bad about when it comes to Adam Banks, because it's not just in this film, but it's going to be in D2. This character is so porcelain. He is injured (laughs) all of the time. But to Vincent LaRusso's credit, he anchors this character. Like, you know, I was talking before about how they were towing the line with Jesse and Terry's dad, not exactly being a stage parent, but like being very concerned with ice time. Adam's father is definitely a stage dad. Uh, You can tell that he's putting the pressure on him. He doesn't sit with the Ducks. He won't wear the Ducks jersey. He's not going to embrace it anyway. And Adam stands strong through all of that. The hazing in the locker room on his first game. um, For somebody that doesn't necessarily have a lot of screen time and was more of a plot device, he really did give depth to this character. Yeah. Marguerite Moreau plays Connie Moreau. One of the uh, few females on the team, but... She plays a big role in the film, and frankly, you give Disney a lot of credit. 30 years ago, you had guys and girls playing on the same hockey team. That's the thing that I think people forget about when it, about this film, is how um, diverse that cast yes. was. It's different genders, it's different races, it's different backgrounds, but they all come together to become a team. Connie is a big part of that. I love that they had two girls on this team, you know, certainly growing up watching it to give a a girl something to to gravitate towards. Even though Connie doesn't have a huge part, she doesn't have a lot of lines. It was just nice to see because in the other films, the comparable films that we were talking about before, you know, Sandlot, um, 
or even just something like heavyweights, which is not sports related, but it did have a lot of these cast members in it. Um, you didn't see girls in movies like it was always the band of brotherhood movies. So I love that they gave us two female characters. And that's certainly one of many things that makes this film stand out from the rest. Heidi Kling K, uh, plays Casey Conway. It's not that she didn't play her well. She just played single 90s mom. Yeah. Um, I hate to I hate to say it like that, but that's literally what it was. It was, oh, single 90s mom, go. And it's like you kind of just knew what to do. Her acting is great, but it definitely falls victim to the writing and direction. Yeah. Brandon Adams plays Jesse Hall. I, I honestly remember him more from The Sandlot than I do from this. Like, I know that Brandon Adams is in this film, and he plays Jesse. And obviously, Jesse, I think for a lot of reasons, when it comes to the chemistry of the cast, is sort of just the fly in the ointment. But to me, he will always throw the heater in The Sandlot more than anything else. I mean, I didn't grow up on The Sandlot the way that you did. Um so I'm, I don't, you know, have that attachment, but I love this character because you did need somebody who was going to butt heads with Gordon. Um, and I like that he was able to do that and he was able to pack a major punch with his attitude without being completely disrespectful. Yeah. Eldon Henson plays Fulton Reed, one of the last pieces that puts the team together. And he, because they had so much faith in him, him, because Gordon had so much faith in him, he is the one that, whether through smooth times or adversity, he stands behind Gordon, and I think it's spectacular. I love this character, and I love the actor. He was part of so many quintessential 90s and early 2000s movies, like Idle Hands, and he was in Butterfly Effect, like he really is a scene stealer. He always has been. Uh, but I just love this character that, you know, had the powerful slap shot, but needed to hone his other skills a little bit more. Um, and I wish that they would have allowed more room to breathe as far as what he gave up to be a part of this team. Yeah. Josh Acklin plays Hans and, I said it to you before and I said it again, uh, or I'll say it again. He was very much the paternal figure to Gordon as he got older. And I love the role that he played in this film. Um, and I think we are going to miss his presence in the second movie. Yeah, I mean, I love Hans as a character. I'm glad that they did keep that for the second film. Um, it's a shame that they couldn't keep the actor. But... Um, I just love Hans as a mentor figure, and I, I think he gave the role. Uh, th this is another one of those roles that really just anchors the film. Uh, and I want to give an honorable mention to Danny Tamborelli, who was such a staple of our childhood. Even though we had two lines of, in this film, I love that he was in it. Final thoughts on the Mighty Ducks. I know that I harped a lot on story structure and some of the dialogue and some of the writing, but by no means... Does my critique mean that it feels formulaic? Because they layered this film so beautifully with so many conflicts and so many subplots, more than just what Gordon is dealing with. And um, what I really love is that, especially if you go back and revisit the trailer, this film was marketed as a comedy. It was marketed 
like The Sandlot and Little Giants. These sports films were such a huge trend in the 90s. Uh, So it certainly did deliver on all of the comedy that the trailer promised. But I think what is so impressive about this film is how they were able to balance it with not only really great editing in these sports sequences, but tonally how serious they made this film, especially when it came to Gordon's story of redemption and how that is balanced out with these, you know, plucky kids that came together. Um, And I'll be darned if my heart doesn't soar every time I hear the score and see a flying V. I love this movie and for all of its warts and for all of its 90s issues that are sometimes a little cringe uh i i actually think it's a near perfect one believe it or not i think it's near perfect i think it holds up i um my issues with it you know the screenwriting at times it's a little sloppy but i think you kind of get away with that because it is a film that is meant for kids it does have a lot of adult issues weaved into it so it is something that is it's there for the whole family my problem is more with changing the rules of the game so that you can produce a narrative. Like, the flying the flying V would never work. You put four guys on the blue line, that flying V's done. It's never going to work. You have four checkers on a blue line that'll finish their checks. The flying V is a failure every time. It is the most senseless hockey thing that could ever exist. But it exists for the film. It's symbolic. I can live with it. Changing how penalties and penalty shots go, you didn't have to do any of that. But they did it anyway. It is what it is. But I think the film still holds up. I think it's a classic. I think that it was certainly a product of its time. But I think it was one of the better products of its time. Yes. So I think that's why it's timeless. Did we need D2? Yes. Did we need D3? No. Did we need Mighty <clears throat> Mighty Ducks Game Changers? Hell to the no. Um, that show was awful. I guess we're going to have to talk about it eventually, even though I have zero interest in doing a rewatch and I have zero interest in watching the second season. That that show was horrific. Um, and I think that it's a kind of a shame that they did to it because I think that they just didn't do it justice to this film because, like... We talked about it just a little while ago. Like, this spawned a very successful NHL franchise. It spawned an animated Saturday morning cartoon. Like, this was such a thing, and it became such a phenomenon. Um, Even now, to this day, it's evidenced when uh, Loungefly did the release. It was a limited release of the Ducks, Backpacks, and Wallets, and you cannot find them anywhere. At least not for a reasonable price. Right. So, I mean, it it is such a thing, and it's iconic. But with all of that being said, those are my issues with Game Changers. But yeah, I think this is a a near-perfect film. We want to know what you have to say about the Mighty Ducks. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning. She helped us pick the right time of year to visit to make sure we don't have big lines. And she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. 
These days it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice and making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day. So we texted Jackie early in the morning and she got back to us right away and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can visit MagicalVacationPlanner.com and request me as your travel agent. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen and Kismet, your official monorail news sponsor. And I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Don't forget, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's work, including all of her Halloween prints, which are awesome. So if you're decorating for spooky season, that would be a good place to check. Yes, she's got a Hocus Pocus print of the Sanderson sisters, so very timely for Hocus Pocus 2 coming out. KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So... We got something that I think everybody wanted at the D23 Expo. Nobody got it at the D23 Expo. Ryan Reynolds apologized that they didn't have it at the D23 Expo, which leads me to believe that they didn't want something R-rated being discussed at D23. I like that he did actually acknowledge that they, you know, just skipped right over it. However... It does beg the question, why was this not a Comic-Con announcement? Right. We are, of course, talking about Deadpool 3. Yes, the internet lost its collective marbles because not only did we get a release date of September 6th, 2024, but we got news that Hugh Jackman is coming back to reprise his role as Wolverine one more time. People are freaking out. Uh, I'm excited. Everybody loves Hugh Jackman in that role. I mean, everybody loves Hugh Jackman, period, right? Yeah. Um, at the time of this recording, though, we have not seen Logan. So I'm wondering in what capacity he's coming back. Because I don't want to spoil this for you because I know you haven't seen it, but I found out what happened. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking that he's coming back in some sort of multiverse role. No, actually, what's happening is Logan was set in 2029. So he's technically still alive for Deadpool 3. So they don't have to play with the timeline at all because they they released a second video, which then was a teaser because then they tell you exactly what the movie's going to be about. And they played Wham! over the entire video. Okay. So, I didn't see the second teaser. Yeah. But it's exciting. I'm excited to get Deadpool 3. We've been waiting for a really long time. The second movie was pretty good. Not not as good as the first one, but it was pretty good. Um, and I'm excited to see Hugh Jackman back for sure. No, and I'm also excited because I think this is going to give us a lot more answers to our X-Men going to be canon or not, as well as Fantastic Four. Right. 
But we want to know what you have to say about Deadpool 3. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. We have a contest that's still going on, so you got to be following that social media to keep up with that. See the prize and how you can win. And for links to everything that I just discussed, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.